You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And for a very specific group of people, one of the biggest news stories of the past week was that Russell T. Davies is going to be returning as the behind-the-scenes boss of the British science fiction show Doctor Who. He'll be taking over the show again in 2023, just in time for its 60th anniversary. But way back in 2006, the last time he was in charge of the show, there was an episode where our hero, a charming, ageless, time-traveling adventurer called The Doctor, who is very kind but also more than a little arrogant, chases a monster through time back into the past. And while he's in the past looking for the monster, he tries to find some clues by reading the mind of one of the people the monster had terrorized. So our hero explains to this woman that he's going to open up a door into her mind. But as he does that, and he's walking around inside of her memories, he realizes that she's doing the same thing back to him. And that's something that's never happened to him before. So he asks her how she did it, and she tells him, a door once opened can be stepped through in either direction. I was thinking about that line a lot as I was helping to edit this week's interview. Our guest this week is professor and Bible translator Dr. Doug Trick. Dr. Trick is a member of Wycliffe Bible Translators of Canada, and he's worked for 25 years doing Bible translation work in Asia, mostly for people groups that didn't have any scripture in their native language. And since 2006, around the time that that episode of Doctor Who was airing, Doug has been teaching Bible translation courses at the Canada Institute of Linguistics, where he leads the faculty team and oversees a few different degree programs. I'll be honest with you, out of all the conversations I've had for this podcast so far, this ended up being one of my favorites, which makes perfect sense given my background in creative writing and speech writing and my interest in missionary theology. Dr. Trick's primary research interest is philosophy of language and especially the nature of translation, and he spent years and years learning about how God communicates with us and how we can communicate effectively with other people in light of our faith. One of the things that you'll hear him talk about today is the fact that Over the course of his career, he's realized that if he wants to be able to share the gospel with someone, if he wants to be able to introduce a new way of thinking to them, he has to get to know them very, very well first. Winning people over isn't just a matter of swooping in and giving them information that he has, but they don't. Translating the Bible for people he's reaching out to isn't so much sending them a letter as it is opening up a door, and walking into their lives. After the interview, we'll talk a little bit more about how Dr. Trick's experiences can help us deal with polarization in our churches and in our cities. But first, we're going to jump into my conversation with Dr. Trick right as I asked him how his work as a Bible translator has changed the way he relates to Scripture. So there's this occupational hazard where when I look at Scripture so much, I'm thinking, is this a good translation? Did they do it well? Or when I hear preachers critiquing 
a particular translation decision. Immediately, I'm not thinking so much about the big picture of what the preacher is communicating, but I'm thinking about the uh, technical issues of translation. There is that negative or sort of dark side of it. But the other thing that kind of has happened in more recent years, when I was involved in, in Bible translation on the field, I was really thinking almost entirely about that particular translation project. And I wasn't really reflecting as much on the nature of translation and the nature of language and communication as I have for the last 15 years now that I've been teaching translation. In these years, I've become much more reflective about the nature and the process itself. And I've become much more aware of, say, the limitation of human language. It's Human language is a wonderful gift from God that enables us to communicate with one another, and really it's the basis for a lot of what takes place in, in nurturing relationships. But but it's very slippery. The human language is so uh, imprecise and variable. Like the idea that what I'm experiencing right now is being communicated to you without any slippage. It, it's just a very naive understanding of the way language works. But God is not limited by that. Of course, God can communicate his heart to us, even using the imperfections of human language. Early on in my Christian life, I was at a Christian bookstore, and a book on one of the shelves caught my eye, and I picked it up, and I read the back. And I don't remember the list of everything the author was complaining about, but one of the things was this steady parade of new translations instead of the time-tested, God-honoring King James Version. What would you say to someone who, like that author, complains that we have too many translations? There's the like old joke about someone who says, like, if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Sure. That's really a big topic, and I can touch on a few ideas with with respect to that. One is that, first of all, we have to recognize there is no per- there never is any perfect translation. Just like there's no perfect communication of any type. Even between my wife and I, we've been married 43 years. And as everybody knows, uh, there's never never any perfect communication whereby something that I'm experiencing can be fully and totally, without any loss, be experienced by somebody that I'm in communication with. The number of times my wife and I have gotten mad at each other and realized, I just want you to read my mind. Right. <laughs> Exactly. So if communication is never perfect between two people who who know each other very intimately, why would we expect there to be perfect communication when a message was communicated more or less two to four thousand years ago on the other side of the world in a vastly different cultural situation? There's going to be a certain amount of kind of slippage. Now, people are very familiar with the expression of there's there's always loss in translation. The reality is there can be also amazing gain in translation. Just the fact that you and I are having a conversation now. Well, I can't express my thoughts to you perfectly, but what I am doing is 100% better than if you and I were not talking at all. So even though perfect communication is not possible. God has ordained our world, our our lives, our his creation. He's ordained it in such a way that there can be a very high degree of relationship building and communication between individuals. And of course it's limited if they speak different languages. But but that can be overcome by incarnational relationship building, learning one another's language and cultural system and so on. So anyway, that's just to point out that the the recognition that 
that there's no perfect translation does not invalidate the translation process at all. It just simply, it's just an extension of the fact that there is no perfect communication, and yet we do communicate. In fact, anybody who's listening to this now is assuming that communication to some degree is possible or they wouldn't be listening. <laughs> Another observation is, and it's the fact that language change, languages change, so the, the, the person might point out, yeah, of course, King James English is different from 21st century English. Also, British English is different from American English, or different from Australian. So languages are different ac across time. They're also different in, in diff across uh, geography. And that's both of those are really a consequence of the same thing. And that is that language is always shaped by the particular speech community. And whenever we're interacting with one another, we're influencing each other's experience of using language. And as we go on through life, we're hearing things that are new, novel expressions. We're picking them up. We're, we're hearing old expressions used in new ways. And we begin to do the same thing. And so language is, is a living kind of thing. It's not a static, something that we can easily draw a very fixed boundary around and say, okay, so this language, this translation was done a hundred years ago. This is the year to uh, to do a new translation. Just if we're thinking about a translation for a particular people group, and we think, what about this other neighboring people group on this other or across the mountain? Uh, can they use the same translation or do they need a different one? All of these issues are very fluid and very dynamic. And the need for for different translations, it's not a real precise determination, but there are, of course, some principles that we follow when we're making decisions about whether or not a translation is needed for a particular people group or a revision is needed at a particular time. But having said all that, I would also suggest that those who are a little bit concerned about the plethora of uh, English translation, there's just hundreds and hundreds of them. You know, almost every year uh, there's a new one that comes out. So yeah, I think it is a valid concern that we who speak English, particularly North American English, we are just really overfed by uh, translations. I would also point out, though, that some publishing houses that do prepare and distribute new translations, some of them are very systematic in using some of their profits to support ongoing scripture work, translation and distribution among more marginalized people groups around the world. So it is a very complicated situation. I have about probably four questions <laughs> off of everything you just said. First, just on the most personal level, you had mentioned at the top of the interview that you went into translation work rather than pastoral work because you're a little bit more introverted. Uh, you weren't sure you wanted to spend that much time on the front lines with people. But you just talked about the importance of being incarnate within a particular group of people for a translator to be able to do their work well. So I guess how has that desire to be a little bit more behind the scenes ended up playing out for you since you now realize it's important if you're translating to be among the people you're translating for regularly? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and it was quite an eye-opener to me. I, and it was partly based, my, my first assumption was based on a rather static view of the nature of language and, a and, a, and an assumption that once you've learned a language, you can isolate yourself in your office where you're comfortable 
as an introvert and work on the translation hidden away from the realities of life and, and the messiness of relationships. But in fact, that's not that doesn't work. And it's interesting because many people are who are drawn to work in Bible translation do come with that kind of an assumption that being an introvert is a good thing because it's a very meticulous process and it needs a lot of concentration and a certain amount of time that can be spent alone. But really, language learning doesn't take place uh, in an office. It takes place in a community when you're out among people and interacting with them. And also, in many cases, if a particular uh, people group doesn't have scripture, they may not even have uh, a group of believers among them. So they're being exposed to a totally new message. And if you expect a people group to adopt a new message from somebody that they have no relationship with, that's very naive too. So it's this, it's actually something that I've had to work on all my life was to um, intentionally spend more time getting out in the community, interacting with people. There, there are some stages of translation pro- projects where we, we do need to test the translation in the community and get people's feedback. And so those kind of force you into it. But Beyond that, I, I know that there were many times when I just said, I need to spend an hour today, go to go sit under the tree and visit with people, even though that wouldn't have been my, my first choice of what to do. And you talked about things that get lost in translation. The longer I'm a Christian and the more I engage with translator notes and commentaries and read various different translations within my own native language, the greater appreciation I have for the fact that the translators aren't just trying to figure out how to match vocabulary for vocabulary and grammar for grammar, but there is actually also a gulf between the conceptual world I live in and the conceptual world that these texts were written in. Ancient Hebrew, first century Greek, those aren't just different sets of vocabulary with different grammatical rules. Those are whole sets of communication that derive from completely different ways of understanding what the world is and what a person's relationship to the world is or a person's role within the world might be. They don't. It's not just different words for the same thing. You do a lot of work not just translating these ancient conceptual worlds to your own current one, you're trying to translate these ancient conceptual worlds and contextualize them for a contemporary conceptual world that you are not native to. Those are really crucial issues related to the whole translation process. And I really appreciate that you've brought this up, the whole idea of conceptual categories, because yeah, especially in North America, where so many people are largely monolingual, that they experience all of life with one single framework. Maybe they know a little bit of a couple of other languages, but largely many of us are monolingual. And before I became any involved at all in translation work, I grew up essentially monolingual. And my view, one, one way of describing this using a bit of a metaphor is to think about the nature of a dictionary. So we've got a dictionary that's got maybe maybe five or 10,000 headwords. And for each word, for each headword, it gives a description, say a definition of what that word might mean, and maybe a few example sentences or so on. Now, what, what I thought before I went into translation was, if we're working in another language, what we would do 
with this dictionary is we would just, um, we could leave all those descriptions in place and just plug in different uh, labels for them. But in fact, that, as you point out, that just doesn't work. It's the, it's not just the labels that are different. It's the actual conceptual categories themselves that are different. So that's why really ideally to do a good Bible translation requires incarnational kind of experience to, to, to whatever degree we're able to do that in terms of understanding the original context and trying to understand as much as we can of that. Because the original audience knew that. So when Paul was writing or Jeremiah was writing, speaking, they were addressing certain audiences who had all sorts of understandings of the way of the words that were being used, but as well as the larger context in which they were living and the issues that were being addressed. So first of all, we need to try to get ourselves back there. But as you point out, we also try to get ourselves immersed and embedded in the cultural situation for the audience that we're doing a translation for. A good translation project always includes people who are highly, as highly fluent as possible in the source text, as well as as highly fluent as possible in the receptor language, in the target language. So a translation team usually involves several people who are native speakers of the host language, as well as people who are familiar with the scripture texts. Sometimes there's actually gain when we're thinking about these kinds of dynamics. So when we think of of shame, for example, many people are familiar with the Asian idea of losing face. And our conceptual category, we may have a word in English, the word shame, that we try to attach to that. But many of us know that there, there is not a good map at all between our experience of shame and what uh, many Asians experience, and they, of course they have a different word for it, but they have a vastly different experience. In actual fact, in many situations, the emotional and social experience that Asians or other people in developing countries, their experience is much more uh, closely aligned. It maps much more closely to the experience as we can best understand it as described by um by people in scripture when they were experiencing uh, shame. Hospitality is another example. We think of hospitality as something like we take somebody out for a meal, and in most cases, it doesn't really cost us anything. We, we pay for it, but it doesn't. it's not setting us back. It's not taking a month's rent away from us. Hospitality in the scriptures is often a much, much more costly thing, but people never thought about it as costly. It was just... That's just the thing you do. That's uh, that's who, who wouldn't be hospitable. So there's these different experiences, conceptual categories in our Western world, which don't map very well to Scripture, but in fact, they map quite well in some of the uh, marginalized people groups among whom we're working. So that's what I think about when I say sometimes there's sort of a gain in translation. And the English preference for concrete language assumes that scripture was written purely as a transmission of factual denotations word by word. It assumes that scripture was written to be all content and no form, which as someone whose background before going into politics was in creative writing, who went to a fiction writing conservatory for college, the form in which something is written is part of the meaning, generally. Sure. Robert Alter's commentary on his translation of the Old Testament points out that a lot of books of the Old Testament were written in language 
that isn't just ancient Hebrew, but is even stylized ancient Hebrew for the time. And there are books that are in recognizable common literary forms or literary or poetic structures that were common at the time, but no longer in use now. The form was actually part of the meaning. I, When we were prepping for this, I talked about how God chose to only give us 10 sentences written down on stone tablets that are direct instructions with simple meanings word by word. Other than that, we have about, depending on how your book is printed, one to 2,000 pages of scripture that he chose to give us by inspiring particular authors in particular times and places to use actual literary devices and forms. As a translator, how do you account for that? How do you account for the fact that you're not just trying to figure out what the words mean, but you're trying to figure out what effect the way the words were delivered is supposed to provoke or what deeper meaning is there embedded in the structure of the poem. Like I know plenty of times people have talked to me about Psalms as though Psalms are technical writing and ignoring the like poetic structure or the rhyming thought structure. What do you think gets lost when we get so focused on explaining what individual words or sentences mean in a denotative way that we neglect to pay attention to how a poem or a story or a letter was presented stylistically or formally? Yeah, the thing is, again, a lot of those notions about the compositional view of, of language where the meaning of a sentence is equal to the sum of the meanings of the words in the sentences. That kind of an assumption, I don't know of anybody who's actually ever said that, but it is an assumption that is largely held and unquestioned by many people. Particularly, I think it's it's partly a consequence of being largely monolingual and also a consequence of highly literate society. One of the unintended consequences of literacy among us is that because of it, we have the capacity to look at each individual word and take them apart, look at their own in- internal composition. And we can do that, of course, with clauses and sentences and paragraphs and so on. We just tend to bring that over, that assumption over to the way language is. And yet it flies in the face of the way that we communicate with one another. You can get away with that assumption of language working that way if you're monolingual. But once you begin experiencing life in two or three different, totally different systems, two different languages, uh, and in different cultural worldviews and everything, you realize that the, that the mapping from of, of one word in one language to, an, to a particular word in another language, it just totally breaks down. And so then when you reflect back on what about that message, the original message that was communicated, is it really as compositional uh, as we've always been assuming? You know, if somebody says to me, this podcast is incredibly boring, uh, I'm not focusing on the dictionary meanings of the word podcast and incredible and boring. I'm focusing on what is that person saying about my identity? Oh, how does that impact me? How I feel about myself? And how does it an expression of my relationship with that person? And what can I do to avoid provoking that experience in others? So when we're using language, we're not thinking about the meanings of words. We're thinking about their impact on one another. We're thinking about how is this influencing my relationship with people? All of these other things, that's really what languaging is all about. And so um, focusing on 
the meanings of words and trying to replicate those meanings is like a drop in the bucket of actual language experience. And it's unfortunately, it tends to receive almost 100% of the attention. Bearing all of this in mind, how do we let the Bible shape our morality, shape our moral universe, interact with it devotionally, and really grasp the fullness of what Scripture is or is trying to be without needing to also become linguists, without needing to spend the vast majority of our time learning other languages and the vast majority of our time reading academic papers on the translation process, comparing your work to the works of your colleagues? How do we, as English speakers, interact with Scripture in ways that are spiritually productive without being spiritually thinned out? Yeah, that's really a great question, and it's a question that we all face. And we all want to hear from God, and we we want to hear as clearly as we can. Let me go back to what I mentioned a little bit earlier. Some people throw up their hands in despair and say translation is impossible because they recognize there is no such thing as a perfect translation. And my response to that would be, well, then you must throw up your hands in despair that all communication is impossible because there's no such thing as perfect communication. And yet, our experience, our human experience, is that we can have very rich communication with one another, and we can be very thankful for whatever degree of communication and relationship building we are able to experience. Well, when it comes to understanding Scripture with the huge distance, both in terms of geography and time, and also the reality is this is God's revelation of Himself. God is holy. He's totally outside of his creation. He's perfect. He's sinless. We are sinful. We are finite. So there's all of these huge gaps between who God is and who we are. And so, you know, we can throw up our hands in despair, too, and say it's impossible uh, for us to hear from God. And yet, that's part of who God is. That's part of his sovereignty and his omnipotence, is that he can take uh, broken people And he can take broken tools like human language, which are corrupt and not perfect, and he can still communicate to us. All right, that was my interview with Dr. Doug Trick of the Canada Institute of Linguistics. If you enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear more from him, I've got some good news for you. We talked for probably close to an hour, and I had to cut a lot of that just to keep this episode from taking over the rest of your day. But there are going to be a couple ways you can hear more from him pretty soon. First, just subscribe and keep listening. In a few weeks, we'll run a book club episode where we discuss the book Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes. You can find a link to purchase the book in the show notes for this episode on our website, christiancivics.org. That episode's going to include some of the cut content from my conversation with Dr. Trick, since it ended up being pretty relevant to some of the questions that book raises. Next, we haven't done a bonus episode of the podcast in a while, and I think a more complete recording of this interview would make a pretty good bonus episode. So if you've made a donation to our ministry in the past couple years, I'll get that bonus episode sent your way later this fall. Now, This interview got me thinking about how communicating with someone and 
convincing them of something requires some degree of reciprocity, some degree of not just authority, but of mutual trust and maybe even vulnerability. Andy Grouch, a few years ago, was making the rounds on podcasts and blogs talking about how flourishing only happens when people simultaneously experience authority and vulnerability in their relationships with one another. If there's a relationship where one side has the authority and the other has the vulnerability, then that's a relationship where only one side has control and the other side will suffer. Even if they have their material needs met, they'll still end up in a position where their spirit will suffer. And he says that our goal as Christians is to promote flourishing, not cause suffering or amass control. Dr. Trick highlighted how this works when it specifically comes to Bible translation. To translate the Bible for a particular group of people, his team has to be incarnate in the life of their audience. They can't just rely on learning the language from afar or in an academic setting. They have to see and experience and understand how that language is actually used in practice. They have to learn how to inhabit the world that produced the language. If they don't, they're probably going to end up talking past the people they're trying to reach, using words that seem familiar in ways that their neighbors would never actually claim or understand. This happens all the time in U.S. politics. People try to learn about their political opponents by proxy. We read articles about what our opponents think and why they're wrong. We go down rabbit holes on Twitter or Reddit reading the dumbest things people on the other side have said. Entertainment outlets go around with cameras asking people questions at rallies or protests until they get a particularly frustrating or absurd answer, and then those are the clips they share. The end result is that even if we're using the same words as our political opponents, we're almost never really talking about the same thing. The way Dr. Trick put it is, we're using the same head words, but our definitions are completely different. In the U.S., this is the pattern of the world right now when it comes to political polarization. It makes it hard for we, the people, to have a coherent conversation, and it makes it almost impossible for our government to function the way it's supposed to. And unfortunately, this is also the pattern of the church in the U.S. when it comes to political polarization. For most people, I don't really see a way out of this impasse right now. The platforms and systems and institutions that mediate our conversations with one another are stuck in this model for the time being. And there aren't many options for learning to think, speak, and act differently from most people. And the options that are out there are focused on surface-level behaviors. But the church can be different. The church can be a place where we figure out another way of talking with one another, if we're patient and if we're humble. Because the church gives people on the left and people on the right a place to start finding a common vocabulary and a common vision and a common trusted mediator in our relationships with one another. Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his eventual return give us a way to start talking with one another. They give us a shared vocabulary to start understanding one another. And they give us a reason to want to do it in the first place. If you want to get better at this, if you want to connect with other Christians from around the country and 
across the political spectrum who all want to see the church do better for the sake of being an agent of healing in our country. If you want to start opening doors that you can walk through in either direction with your brothers and sisters across the political spectrum, you should go to our website, christiancivics.org, and go to the upcoming events section and sign up for our next Christian Civics Foundations cohort. It starts on October 19th. It runs for six weeks, and it's going to be an amazing opportunity to challenge and encourage and grow alongside Christians who share your faith, but not your politics. Now, please pray with me. King of kings, Lord of lords, everlasting Father, you've bound us together in Christ, man and woman, Jew and Greek, children of natives and children of immigrants, Democrat and Republican and independent. We know that we will all praise you together when the kingdom comes. We'll stand shoulder to shoulder and sing your praises in different languages, and the fact that we're doing it in your spirit will make it sound like harmony to us instead of cacophony. But practicing that now isn't easy. And in this moment, when each American lives in our own unique universe of information and The people on the left and the people on the right mostly learn about one another from people who want to make us angry at each other or dismissive of one another or afraid of one another. In this moment, looking forward to that aspect of your kingdom is maybe harder for us than it's ever been. Personally, I confess that I too often take comfort in the promise of justice and punishment when I should be praying for humility for myself and repentance and comfort for other people. And I don't think I'm the only one. Thank you for the decades of experience you've given Dr. Trick in learning how your word works and how sharing your heart with others works. We face the temptation to silo ourselves off from one another in the church, to set up different family tables in different rooms of your house. And even when we do gather around a single table together, We find it hard to relate to one another, but you call anyone who finds ourselves in Christ to be part of a new people. So we want to try. As we argue with one another, try to persuade one another, please remind us of Dr. Trick's experience. Just as you saved us by making yourself painfully vulnerable to us, and just as Dr. Trick has learned to view translation and evangelism more like a relationship than a debate, Teach us to stop trying to move the walls that we've set up between one another and instead open up doors in them so that we can reach one another. Teach us to encourage and comfort one another, not just argue. And when we do argue, teach us to do it in love and in good faith. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who could surely find plenty to argue with in all of us but still chose to go to death for us instead, even death on a cross. Amen. All right, that's it for this week. Go to our website, christiancivics.org, for our show notes, where you'll be able to find more information on our upcoming Christian Civics Foundations course, 
a link to the book that we're covering in our book club episode in a couple weeks, and more information on Andy Crouch's ideas about authority and vulnerability. Thank you again to Dr. Doug Trick for joining us. I really had a great time talking with him. And a huge thank you to our producer, Lauren Larson, who's been doing an amazing job of keeping the ball rolling on this podcast. I'm really grateful for her work. And if you could make sure to subscribe to our podcast and maybe leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts, that would be a huge help to her and to the show. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back in about a week with more on how Christians across the political spectrum can think, speak, and act differently in the public square.